The Journal presents the Good Information Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Good Information Podcast, a series where the Journal gets to grips with 15 major topics that our audience has told us are impacting their daily lives and focusing their minds on the future. I'm Susan Daly, Managing Editor of The Journal, where the Good Information Project has been giving readers the opportunity to engage directly with editors and journalists on these issues. With you, we've looked at their impact on Ireland and on our place in the wider EU. In this episode, we are asking ourselves, how do we win the war on disinformation? It's one of the driving forces of chaos of our time. The deliberately false information spread by bad actors, largely on the internet and largely through social media and messaging services. How do we keep up with the new tactics of these disinformation merchants? Can Ireland and the EU play a part in battling them? We'll answer these questions and more, but here's what you told us about why this issue matters to you. False information, misinformation, hidden information, massaged information, statistics, lies and damn lies. Take your pick. The problem is we used to believe what everyone else believed. Now we have a surfeit of information which forces us to draw on our own conclusions. We don't like that. We fear uncertainty, which is why totalitarian states are on the rise. I don't think we're looking at it from the right angle. Since misinformation cannot be stopped, it's an unfortunate part of human nature to lie, misrepresent and obscure the truth. So we need to accept it exists and will always exist. What's needed is education for individuals to learn how to identify it. A change in mindset to question everything from media instead of blindly believing. Students in college are generally taught how to write academic papers by sourcing any claims made or facts stated through peer-reviewed studies. Failure to reference properly is highlighted as undoing the authority of your work. And I think it really helps for looking at news media in a different light when so many very serious statements are made without following this. I think school students at a younger age could really benefit from learning about this and analysing examples of misleading news, unsourced claims and opinion pieces masquerading as news. In the last few weeks, I've seen a normally rational Facebook friend go full on down the rabbit hole on what Russia is doing in Ukraine. So much so that several others have blocked him and I've had to mute him. And one of my best friends of 18 years in real life has recently accused me of twisting things he said simply because I remember what he said in the past when he said that Russia was right to seize Crimea. I can't see how that is twisting things other than he feels guilty about saying it in light of what's happened. So what are the facts of the matter? In our next segment, Good Information Project producer Carl Kinsler has been learning about the extent to which Irish people have felt exposed to misinformation in recent times and whether they have found themselves passing it on. Irish people are regularly being exposed to what they perceive to be misinformation and disinformation online, according to a poll conducted by Ireland Thinks on behalf of the Good Information Project. While it might be more comforting to assume that bad information is being spread only by malicious actors in faraway places, 68% of Irish people answered in the affirmative when asked, have you seen family or friends sharing things on social media or messaging apps that you believe to be misinformation? Over a quarter said that they saw relatives and friends sharing false information often. 
The proportion of people who say they see their loved ones sharing misinformation or disinformation is high no matter what the age bracket, though it is lowest among those over the age of 65. This could be due to a slight decrease in computer literacy, or it could be that older people are less likely to spend every waking moment of their lives in some way online. 77% of those between the ages of 25 and 34 say that they have seen friends or relatives sharing misinformation. When separated by voting tendency, the results were all over 60%, with two notable exceptions. Labour voters were lower than the average, with just 47% saying they had seen friends or relatives share misinformation. But in a totally anomalous result, those who said they would not vote at all returned a whopping 88% of respondents saying that they had never seen what they believed to be misinformation shared online. Where the generational differences are far more noticeable is in an individual's response to seeing misinformation being shared or espoused. Two-thirds of those between the ages of 18 and 24 say that they have argued with a relative or a friend either on or offline as a result of misinformation. This figure was 70% for those between the ages of 35 and 44. However, once you reach the over 65 cohort, it drops to 38%. Nevertheless, taken as a whole, Irish people's preferred method of dealing with seeing people they know sharing misinformation online is to ignore it. This is the selection of 39% of respondents from the poll. A further 11% said they don't just ignore such situations, but they also either mute or block the sharer. 12% said that they engage and respond publicly, whereas 25% said they engage and respond in private. Wanting to learn more about the role media can play in stopping the spread of disinformation, we asked our participants if a fact check has ever changed their mind. One quarter of respondents said they had had their minds changed by a fact check, and a further third said they had not changed their minds, but that fact checks had added context to their understanding of an issue. The largest cohort of respondents, 35%, said, however, that a fact check had never changed their mind. Young people were significantly more likely to have their minds changed by a fact check, with 39% saying a fact check had changed their mind, with those who responded no increasing incrementally between the ages of 25 and 65. As Dr. Eileen Culotti told our Open Newsroom panel in UCC, however, the barometer of success for a fact check is not whether or not it changes someone's mind. Instead, they should be used as a resource in a society-wide, integrated approach to eliminating disinformation and the conditions that make disinformation possible. Thanks, Carl. Now, let's get to the front line of the fight. I'm joined by the Journal's fact-checker, Brianna Parkins, to discuss the landscape we've been seeing in our fact-check unit and some of the steps we've been told Ireland and the EU can take to respond to this new world. Welcome, Brianna. Tell me this, here we are, over two years on, and there is no doubt that COVID-19 became a playground for disinformation and conspiracy theories. How has it altered the disinfo landscape for us? So that landscape was already there, and it just seems that COVID brought out what I like to call, it's a highly unscientific term that only I use. (laughs) So I could be talking out of my hoop here, but I call it the wonderful terrible of the internet, right? So that means that there's never been more information available to us, but there's also been there have been more disinformation available to us, but we also have the tools to check instantly if someone is maybe, or something is maybe not representing the facts um, in its sort of completion. So if you're sort of watching like a a TV debate or you're watching like, you know, the Tonight Show, some kind of forum or listening to the radio and someone spouts something off, you can instantly Google them in in the space of three seconds and tell whether they're, they're being honest or whether it's disinformation. So you think that that would make us all really, really, you know, cling to the facts, really cling to research. It doesn't because then you can put out, you can make all kinds of sort of half truths sound truthful with the right amount of stats, with the right amount of cherry picking, you know, a study here that might not have been peer 
peer reviewed. So you just get this big amalgamation of mess to wade through and people can't be bothered to wade through mess. So you're basically saying to the the individual, look, it's up to you now. You have all the information that's ever been available in the history of mankind at your fingertips. You have to figure it out. And that's a big responsibility to put on to people. And then when COVID happens, uh, it's almost the perfect breeding ground for disinformation and misinformation. And we didn't even know these terms. Most people, that wasn't in our lexicon before COVID. So you had all at once, we all started to care about the same thing at once. Whereas before, you know, half of us didn't really care about if 5G was going to give us cancer. Other half didn't really care about, you know, food being genetically modified. These are kind of special interest topics that people sort of, you know, went off into. And the majority of us, you know, we just went to work, we paid our taxes and we watched Love Island. Now, all of a sudden, we have the whole world worried about the one thing, which is COVID-19. And it was a thing that we didn't know a lot about. So suddenly, we're all scared of the one thing and we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know if it's going to kill us. We don't know how to solve the problem. So we're all looking for answers in the one place in an instant. And that is the perfect breeding ground um, for people to put out sort of half truths. Or sometimes people put out the truth thinking that was it. You know, when we talk about COVID-19, sort of, you know, I don't like to use the term conspiracy theorists. Um, these people are often very afraid. You know, we, we've, we've spoken to sort of psychiatrists and psychologists around um, why people believe misinformation and disinformation. And sometimes it's actually less scary to believe that COVID is a global world conspiracy, you know, by the Illuminati than saying it's actually a virus that we don't know a lot about. And can you see that transferring then in terms of this landscape changing, but those, some of those changes staying? Can you see it transferring from COVID to, say, other other subject matters where um, people will be looking for, as you say, that simpler answer, which often can lead to, well, that must be it and everything else must conform to that answer? Yeah, I mean, we saw, you know, the 5G thing, right? 5G gives you cancer, um, is less terrifying than you might live a really healthy life, never smoke, never drink, do everything right and still get cancer. Mm-hmm. That's cruel and it's unusual and and a lot of health problems are cruel and unexplainable. So having something to blame and go, well, if I stay away from the 5G towers, I won't get cancer is comforting. So that's that was kind of around before COVID. I don't know if there'll be anything that will replace COVID to that level where we're all worried about it at the once. Like, you know, a lot of people are worried about cancer, but not all of us like but basically all of us were, were at risk of covid um you know every country had lockdowns every country had restrictions every country had deaths i don't think anyone got out of this unscathed i don't know if it's going to happen on the same level i hope it doesn't happen on the same level because it means there's another global crisis of, of that of that magnitude and we don't want to see that and I suppose if we recognise then that we are all familiar now with the terms disinformation, very, very pointed campaigns of spreading poor information out there, something that's completely wrong with an objective to getting people believing something and misinformation, which swirls around. You see it in your WhatsApp groups and so on. So there's a lot going on there and there have been steps like people are trying to tackle that on a very, I suppose, straightforward level in within the journal and the Good Information Project. We've been doing a lot of fact checking and, and our fact check unit, of course, which you are working in. Um, when we're looking at the steps can be taken, I might break this question down a little bit. You mentioned, first of all, at the individual level, things that you can do to help. And it was around getting more familiar with the fact that there are trustworthy sources to go to or recognising the hallmarks of something you might need to check out. 
Yeah, I mean, there's no perfect solution. Um, and if I had the perfect answer to disinformation and misinformation, I'd probably be sitting on a yacht right now um, <laughs> instead of Dublin. But uh, on an individual level, it's it's really tough because people talk about, you know, media literacy and, you know, the whole think before you share. That's a really vague instruction. Like, think about what? Like, you know, sometimes journalists do get it wrong. Sometimes there are retractions and, and there are apologies. But I always say to people, you have to look at the consequences of if this person is not telling you the truth, what's the consequence? What will happen to them? If they're a journalist and they're found to to be willfully misleading people or they're making up sources or, or they're trying to spin something, you know, there are professional ramifications for that. They might lose their jobs. There's, there's you know, every country has like a, a media sort of code of ethics. Um, you have the BAI here. Um, every Most countries have a body like that. So you will get slapped uh, with both sort of professional and personal um, consequences. Like, you know, you might not be able to get another job. If you're like looking at someone who's, you know, a new podcaster or has their own YouTube channel, um, but they won't, they might you know, they won't lose out really. They won't lose their job because they're self-employed. They're not going to probably get sued um, by an individual because they don't really have a lot of money. The same publications have. Their consequences for, for lying are much lower than a professional journalist. So you need to kind of think what the skin is in the game for the person telling you the thing. Mm-hmm. And so that covers it to a certain extent at the media level too and that need to, I suppose, establish that branding of trustworthiness and, and so on in a very, very uh, noisy environment, especially online at the moment. And then going right up to the political level and we're looking at what Ireland could be doing or is doing and what the EU is or could be doing. Um, there are a number of different actions I think we, they could take. I know certainly we have um, the European um, Digital Media Observatory and, and the journal is working with part of that. And it's really interesting to see on the ground individual organisations in countries and supported somewhat by the EU to try and think of solutions and tackle that and media literacy and fact checking. But then there's higher level stuff, um, policies that could be brought in or are being brought in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, everyone's excited about the digital services. I feel like the Beyonce of like uh, disinformation, misinformation legislation at the minute. God, that's a really long sentence. Um, That's kind of everyone's like, oh, my God, nothing's ever been done on this level before because it's actually not against the law to spread misleading information in, in the EU. There's no like specific law against it. And it's really, really hard to legislate because what's misinformation and what's political opinion like if I go I you know uh, you know I think that Fina Gale you know would not stand there round at a bar like they that's the party who would leave you on a shout right um, is that misinformation or is that or is that opinion? Brianna's opinion yeah. yes <laughs> you know what's, and there's a lot of you know freedom of speech advocates out there who the legislation is, is making them very nervous um, but what this legislation does is not so much ban individual parts of like you can't say this you can say this it more puts the onus and it you know it puts kind of uh i think financial punishments i haven't think they've decided on like exactly what that if these platforms like facebook twitter tiktok uh i I'm telegram would be huge for telegram because you know telegram at the minute has become a real um hub of these groups that have been kicked off other platforms like facebook and twitter and, and they're on telegram so these now platforms they could face uh, punishment for for not complying with with the acts for not checking out you know that they're doing the right thing so that that's huge that's never really been done before mm-hmm. that's quite ambitious and in terms of Ireland and mainland Europe and your experience in fact checking as well 
Are we a little different in terms of disinformation in particular? Do we see a lot of it? Do we see different things from other European countries? Um, how have you found that? I was shocked at how much Ireland matches to the beat of its own drum. Like it just it just really does its own thing. Um, and, it was, you know, I, I think it's different from other Western speaking countries that we might share a lot of things culturally with, like the UK, America, Australia. I, I mean, I did this kind of work in Australia. And I think the reason why Ireland is a bit different compared to those countries is uh, we don't have the culture war stuff as much as um, America, England and Australia. We don't really have this uh, culture in the media of using issues as badges to identify each other. So, you know, your position on on trans rights, on um, COVID, on free speech, on all these kinds of sort of social issues, I guess, and health issues, um, immigration, stuff like that, that will decide whether that you're like a like a lefty, woke snowflake or a conservative Karen. It's kind of used as a badge to identify each other. Irish people don't do that. I think they have the, we have the term like cop on. Um, and that's, that's, that's such an Irish term, which is, you know, calm down, be sensible. Actually, what are the facts here? And I think Irish people do have a really, really good uh, culture of, of, you know, settling into the story, what's actually happening, not just... Uh, they're very hard to dog whistle on, on a lot of issues, which is a good thing. Um, but compared to Europe, I thought there'd be a bit more similarities. We'd see, you know, stuff bleeding through, you know, like globalization, everything gets spread everywhere. But when fact checkers from other countries talk to me and they're like, oh, hey, have you seen this disinformation going around? It's a video of this politician in what looks like to be some kind of political building um, pretending to fake vote so he can get more money. Um, you know, we had a story similar to that, but that did actually happen in Ireland. But we didn't see this clip that was spreading through all the other countries in Spain. It was in France. It was in, I think, Ukraine. All across the across Europe were seeing this clip going, you know, politicians aren't really doing their job. It didn't come to Ireland. It was instantly dismissed when it got here. It was really interesting that we're just not seeing that bleed across. That's a rare glimmer, I think, uh, for for Ireland in terms of misinformation and certainly on those individual clips not traveling. Mm. Saying that, are the things we should guard against? I'm thinking about, you know, with the war on Ukraine, I've certainly seen, um, I suppose, Irish people kind of talking about, well, you know, Russia is actually coming from this point of view and there has been some things that you would recognise uh, in the more general terms as being, I suppose, associated and definitely part of that wider narrative around when you see Russian, you know, focused disinformation coming out. Um, so is there, do we still have to be on our guard for importing general narratives? Yes. Uh, and I'm, what I'm seeing now is we saw in... Um, sort of Eastern European countries neighboring Ukraine who are taking in the most uh, dis- displaced people. We're sort of seeing anti-immigration sentiment going, you know, these people have been put up in five-star hotels and they've ripped the plasma screen TVs off the wall. And you're like, where would they be taking the plasma screen TVs? I don't have a house. You know, it's, it's stuff like that about, you know, Ukrainian or immigrants not being legitimate um, refugees. Uh, and we're starting to see shades that creep into Ireland now. And it's strange because Ireland never really had an anti-immigration sentiment. It, it is there. It's bubbling along. It never really hit the mainstream consciousness. You weren't seeing it on mainstream Facebook pages, right? And and sort of groups, mums groups, that kind of thing. And it's because we never really had a large group of immigrants really move to Ireland. We export people. We don't really import people. And now we're starting to see that in these groups. Little shades were popping up. We saw, you know, Ukrainian refugees have refused social housing that Irish people have been lining up for 
there's been no proof of that at all. So we're starting to see all this little antidotal WhatsApp messages, things in Telegram groups going, this person's not even Ukrainian mm-hmm. um, and they're claiming asylum in Ireland so they can get free healthcare and all the things that Irish people can't even get. They're, they're skipping the queue for hospitals, for appointments, for surgeries. It's no proof of that actually happening, but it's already tapping into a thing in Ireland of there's not enough housing, there's not enough healthcare for us all. So we need to really be careful of these issues being transposed and hitting nerves that already exist in Irish society. Great point. And you can catch more of Brianna's work in the Journal's Fact Check Unit. And thank you so much for coming in, Brianna. We'll give the last words to Thomas O'Canetta of the European Digital Media Observatory Fact Checker Unit. He was one of the panellists who took part in our open newsroom panel. And he tells us how the spread of COVID disinformation has had some impact on how Russian propaganda has been spreading this year. They have, uh, you know, common characteristics, uh, the audiences of the COVID-19 related disinformation and the Ukrainian related disinformation. Uh, so first of all, the disbelief in the official version on, on the, what the traditional newspapers and media are saying, they do not believe that. And uh, this is very, very dangerous, I think, because uh, among uh, the, um, the skeptic and the anti-vaxxers and no masks movements, I think that not anybody was a pro-Putin supporter before the war. But if the channels you ended up trusting during the pandemic now feeds you false information about the situation in Ukraine, there is a huge risk that you will end up believing in the Kremlin propaganda and Russian disinformation. So this is very, very worrying. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Information Podcast. Today's episode was edited and produced by Adrian Carty with research by Carl Kinsler and additional journalism from the Good Information Project team. Go to thejournal.ie to find out more about the entire Good Information Project and email us at goodinformation@thejournal.ie with your feedback and questions. If you want to hear more episodes in this series, find us at the Good Information Podcast on the Journal app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament.